Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Here we go. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Talent Tank. As you guys clicked on today's episode, wow, yes, Ultra 4 represented here. This guy, I've been on him for a long time to come on the show, and he kept saying, no, I'm not the guy. Keep focusing on the racers. Keep focusing on the fab guys. But then finally, finally, he gave in. I'm so glad he's on. Alan Johnson. Alan, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Oh, man. Well, ecstatic to sit down here with you. You know, you had a long day of work, and then this, and then I had a long day of work, rush home to get in to sit down and uh do the next you know couple hours with you so i'm pretty pumped yeah me too i appreciate you having me on bud so alan alan if, if, if people aren't familiar with alan or the name and he's not a racer today he was a racer in the past he's got a couple uh national championship titles to his name in 4500 uh but he is the current marketing and communications vice president of ultra four racing it's a big title I was going to say, it sounds like that way. I don't want to, I don't want that guy's job. <laughs> I don't know of anyone that wants your job. You do kind of everything. That's your title, but you're kind of the, the current do all for ultra four, right? It seems like everything kind of falls towards you. You know, I, I'm the do all that you see because I get to interact with people online or, you know, racers and scheduling. But if you want to find a real do all, go find Abe or go find, you know, Scott Hartman and, Ultra four in general is everyone may have a defined role, but we're all do alls to a certain extent. I, I just get to do it with social media and communication. So no. shows the ugliest mug they could find and said, you go be social media. So, okay. Fair, 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 fair uh, assessment of yourself. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how I put it. I will say that uh, I was really shocked. You know, at one point the ultra four social media presence it felt like it was a team effort and then talking to you recently that might have been the case in the past but today almost all social media we see kind of ends up originating in your head to a certain extent again you're never going to get me to say something's not a team effort because everything is a certain respect we've got fantastic photographers that provide content and putting words to epic photos is a lot easier than you would think uh, sales team's done a great job uh, working and building communication with our partners. So we, you know, we plan ahead. We planned ahead for the Bronco launch. We planned ahead for, you know, on-site events. So I coordinate it and, and probably touch the buttons quite a bit. But it is still a, a team effort when it comes to uh, the messaging and gathering all the content. Oh no, you guys have been killing it. I, I, there's no way it all can originate at one point of a failure, so to speak, or there's no short circuiting of that. It is. The cool stuff, you know, the top 10 drivers, the top 10 vehicles, the top 10 uh, races, the, you guys are constantly finding new and interesting ways to engage the audience. Well, it's fun when it's something you love, you know, and we love the sport and we love the drivers and yeah, man, there are some amazing content creators in this space. So it's it's actually really neat just to provide a platform for all the creatives that uh, tell the story because all of us have been involved in racing for so long. That's part of what draws us to it is the stories and the personal aspect and the pit and the challenges. No, I love it. I utilize a lot of your headshots. A lot of guys, the entities that have graced this show with their time, presence, and beauty, glory got, you know, your picture 
something that you snapped of, of their head uh, end up being um, what their cover art is. And I appreciate that. You know, it's real. I've got to give that credit to my wife. She, uh, and I know we'll talk about her in a little bit, but she's very supportive. And even when she's criticizing, she criticizes supportively. So she's, you know, like, like any husband, you know, look, honey, what I made. She was real honest with me. After about the fourth picture, all the race cars start to look the same to her. That, that's kind of not her gig. I mean, I can tell you exactly who they are by their silhouette coming through dust with no numbers showing, but they look the same to her. So I happened to snap some pictures of, you know, Dave and JT and Andrew and a couple others. Oh, that's who that is. And so I started going to events and tried to make sure I took people pics. They always tease me that I was the mom of the group anyway. You know, I always want to make sure I get school pics and people pics and lineups so we can get the family. But but it is. And that became one of the most popular parts of what we did. That, that now an event is a failure if at least eight people don't use my photos as their, their profile shot on Facebook. You absolutely. Know? So it's kind of, Kind of turned into a thing, but I absolutely love it because I try to get candy shots. I try to get people to do what love. And it, again, just tells a different story of Ultra 4 that I think people can relate to, even if they can't build cars. They, they can understand smiling and family and having a good time. Which is what it's all about to begin with, right? We'd, you, you bet. We'd hang out with, you know, uh, our best friends if we were ditch diggers just to be around our best friends, you know, and, and the people that we call basically our family, our race family. So. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Y'all are killing it. Yeah. I had a conversation with Lana over at Scott's designs and cause I needed, I actually used a picture of hers here in the, in the past couple of weeks. And as I reached out to her, I'd realized that she had taken a picture of you and I'd asked her about it months, months, and months ago. And she said, yes, I use it, which was a reminder for me to hit you back up and say, Hey, when are you going to come on? <laughs> you finally said, yeah, I'll do it. What was it? What was the apprehension? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, this is so funny. If you know me, you know, I won't shut up. You know, I like to be the center of attention unless I'm the center of attention. And I'm so interested in helping Ultra 4 grow and really putting the spotlight on a sport that I love and the people I love that I honestly didn't want it to be, you know, about me. And now you've done enough shows and you've established yourself and you've had some amazing guests. And I'm like, okay, now, now I can slip in here and talk a little bit about Alan and it not detract from Ultra 4 or things along those lines. So for me, it's just a matter of timing. I like to tell the story. I don't like to be the story, if that makes sense. The guy behind the camera at all times, the other person that I recall that had this same kind of a- apprehension was Will Gentile, another guy who's behind the camera. I'm going to say, that guy's a genius. Definitely one of my mentors and uh, heroes when it comes to telling stories and media and content creation and Again, another one of those examples of someone who early in my career would spend time to just share and coach and befriend someone. And you, you just don't see that in other sports, but that uh, vibe even permeates to the, the media family, just racing. Oh, for sure. You get it out there because I kind of skipped it. You're on Instagram as the Dusty Gnome. You're kind of on, <laughs> on, on oh, I have questions about that. And then you're on Facebook, you know, with, you know, white collar publishing is kind of what your, uh, your photography business is on the side. And like I said, I'm, I'm definitely going to go into all that, but I, as people have seen the dusty gnome, you're there, that's your presence, but you're also, you know, kind of one of the guys behind the scenes on the ultra four posts. So you can kind of see that oozing through. And certainly when we want to talk about how you got into photography and kind of how that has taken off in the off-road world and kind of even how that ended up uh, with your role, you know, at, at Ultra 4. 
I will get in there here in a little bit, but man, I want to talk about just current issues kind of real quick because I'm going to say this weekend we've got nationals in Oklahoma. What's going on there, man? Is everything on track? What are the things that we need to know that Ultra Four wants us to know as we approach, you know, the next uh, four or five days? Man, I am so friggin' excited. I mean, it, it's a, it's cliche at this point to say 2020 has been a strange year. But I mean, that's actually one of the hallmarks of Ultra Four, right? It's our ability to adapt and overcome, whether it's on the race course or you know, what states open, what states closed. So I'm thrilled we're going to be in Davis, Oklahoma. I thoroughly enjoy when we go to Reno and we'll be back in Reno for 2021. But Brian Trotter and the whole crew out at the Crossbar Ranch really made it easy for us to put on a, a, a top-notch race uh, at a fantastic facility that, frankly, is more centrally located for more people. Trotter and the crew opened up more course. So JT went out and just had a blast. It's about a 30-mile race course. Still an A lap or an A loop, which is uh, more speed related, and then a very technical rocky B loop through the creeks and the climbs. Two laps for stock. So stock's doing 60 miles. Oh, nice. Nice. Yep. 90 miles, three laps for Legends Modified. And quite frankly, I love being on the conversation where JT's like, hey, we, we told UTVs to prove themselves. They prove themselves. Let's give them something hard too. So UTVs are running three laps as well. And then the big boys are doing four. So it's a 120-mile final to cap out the year. So since we couldn't race as many races as we wanted to, we'll just race longer in each race and try to make up for it. I like that. I think the racers will like that too, but that's really going to change strategy for Davis when you start looking at that many miles. Oh man. And, and do you, do you pit at the end of the A or at the end of the B? I mean, that's really one of the nice, uh, aspects of, of crossbar ranch is the course is almost like a bow tie or a figure eight. So you can do, you know, a loop and a half. So yeah, strategy is certainly part of it and it truly makes it an endurance race again. You know, it's a, there's a short course component. There's a tight wooded component, love the drag race by the uh, windmills and stuff. I mean, it's absolutely a beautiful course, but yeah, it's a long day and we think it'll be super competitive. And with the points being so jacked up this year as well, I mean, let's again, just be frank. We went from King of the Hammers, Nationals, and six regional races to we've had four races this year and then a a bonus race at Crandon. So Nationals count. And whether you finish, you know, two laps or four laps is going to make a dramatic difference in what the season ending uh, point totals are. So we've got great cars, great drivers, great course, but frankly, enough drama that you're not going to know what's going on until it's over. It's, it's not an in the bag or one person's race to lose at this point. And that's cool. Who, who doesn't like a good, competitive, hard fought race? Yeah, and that's going to be strategy as well, not just uh, not just on the, the pitting strategy, but literally, you know, how hard do you push and when do you push and where do you push? Just to ensure you can get the finish. I mean, 120 miles at Davis is not going to be a walk in the park. I have on good authority that uh, Chip is going checkers or records to land on the box. So at the very least, you got to watch Chip to see what what he does because he he is going all out for all 120 miles, from what I understand. That is how is that different than any other race for him? Chip happens, man. Just saying, <laughs> Chip. He's, he's putting it out there ahead of time. Oh Lord, I love that guy. He's, he's good see, in a, Texas. Yep. Just a couple other things that, that are important to note, not to get too much into the business side of things, but there are a few differences this year. And again, it just has to do with this being such an unusual year. Typically, you had to race hammers and a regional race to be able to come to nationals. It was kind of earn your way into it. 
Obviously, we didn't have as many chances to race this year. So nationals are open to anyone, even if it's their their first race of the year. However, it's not a gimme KOH qualifier. So this is not a way to short circuit LCQ and show up and go, ha ha, I'm in King of the Hammers. Nope, you could have done that in Tennessee. You could have done that in Moab. People who want to just experience Ultra 4, people who want to shake down before Hammers. This is a great opportunity to come out and, and, and race and uh, really enjoy it. Also, like it or not, the digital reduced contact experience is where we live these days. And so we're utilizing some of those elements at Nationals. You may have already noticed, you know, you can pre-register online. You can buy tickets online. Uh, there's a lot more you can do. And, and we want to incorporate these at Nationals so we can refine it for King of the Hammers this year. So it's going to be the same great stuff we love doing. Just a couple little nuances due to the, the year. But yeah, Nationals are just going to rock. Digital transformation. I mean, that's a, that's a cool, cool beta, cool beta test. You will get grace on rolling anything new out, but to roll it out at KOH would be almost reckless. So it's very cool to hear you guys are taking uh, some very proactive steps. Well, as I say this with love, it's hard to change things at Ultra 4 sometimes. This is how we've done it. It does its stuff. It works. Don't mess with it. But this year has really given us a chance. And, and Dave, quite frankly, has really empowered, you know, uh, myself. He's empowered Ryan. He's empowered Scott. And so we've, we've got a chance to try some things different since it is such a disruptive year as it is anyway, all in the spirit of making the experience better for our racers, our fans, our sponsors. So I don't like this year, but I'm grateful for this year because uh, I think it gives us a chance to try some things That'll just make the whole sport and the whole experience better going forward. Love to hear that. So we talked about like how tight things are going to be, you know, certainly with strategy. There's going to be some call outs for, because there's a lot of things on the line with this race because of what it is and when it is and being the last race of the year and national titles being what they are. You know, Moab was kind of the, the first chance to see the USAC timing system in play. How did that play out? Did, do you guys have uh, an instilled confidence now after the problems that we'd had over the past uh, couple of years with timing and, uh, and finishes? Absolutely. Again, this is one of those areas where we're getting a chance to try something different. And USAC has been doing this for years and other race series and events. Certainly, we pose some additional challenges just because of the rock and the remote location. But Moab was a great experience to figure out what worked and what didn't work. And it was actually very smooth from a timing perspective. One of the things we do the Monday after every race is sit down and capture what worked, what didn't work. We take notes. Again, Ryan Thomas is, is very organized about, hey, learn and apply what we learn to the next one. So you will see uh, timing uh, be even tighter at uh, nationals. And of course, all of this is pointing towards just making it turnkey, reliable and trustworthy. Uh, so when we get to hammers and future races and beyond, I don't have to check memes of KOH to see how we're getting lampooned that particular event because of timing. So, you know what? We've got an independent third party. They're very good at what they do. And I'm really excited we we made that change because it takes a lot of the drama and guesswork out of it. They're good at what they do. Just lends confidence all the way around the board. And we've seen that confidence eroded. And, you know, there's there's a lot of grace to be given but when it's, you know, endless and continuous, it's like, okay, guys, we're over it. Let, let, let's, let's get our proverbial, you know, crap together. Again, a great example of being able to know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, and go find people who are great at it if it's a gap. And it's a gap we had, and we're, we're really excited to partner with USAC. We think it'll, it'll make a big difference. First, 
and foremost, thank you for the insight on uh, what we have coming up here at Nationals. I'm pretty excited. Um, I, you know, I don't live that far away. It's still a seven and a half hour drive. But, you know, when you live in Texas, it's kind of everywhere is a, a day drive no matter what. So uh, and based on I've got some meetings on that, you know, on Friday morning. So I'm actually going to fly up. I'm going to fly to Dallas and grab a rental car and uh, join you guys, you know, be there for a qualifying Friday afternoon. And then, um, you know, you brought up Chip a little while ago. Last uh, last Nationals, Chip had a, a flamethrower. That was always, you know, something fun that everyone needs in their pit space is a flamethrower. That was pretty solid chip. So please bring that again. And, uh, and yeah, we will have a good time. And, uh, Alan, I, I absolutely can't wait to see you in person. So it's very cool that we're getting, uh, right from the horse's mouth from ultra four, kind of some of the details you just gave us a ton of insight on, uh, on the course. So people will hear this. They've got a couple of days to plan for strategy as, uh, as they're loading and packing up to, uh, head to South central, uh, South central Oklahoma. All right, Alan, shifting gears. Let's get into, uh, let's, let's flashback. Let's go, uh, why people are here, you know, really to talk about you. That's my plan. Uh, flashback's the right word for it. <laughs> you're, what are you? If I do my math right, you're what, about 48? 48. Be 49. I'll actually be 49 in February. You know, King of the Hammers and my birthday parties figure in quite solid. But yes, I'm reaching the point where I can say pushing 50. Yeah, you're getting close. You, you actually, when I've watched you buzz around the media tent at in Hammertown, you you buzz around like somebody who's in their 20s or somebody who definitely doesn't drink a bunch of beer that before. Which <laughs> no, whiskey's whiskey's good for you. Beer's not. Fair, fair statement. I like that statement as well. So, were you born in Arkansas? You know, ironically, I wasn't. I was born in Anaheim, California. Grew up in Laguna Hills. We lived there until I was seven. But both sets of my parents and all, all my grandparents all grew up in Arkansas. So California in the late 70s wasn't exactly where you wanted to raise kids. So we moved to uh, northwest Arkansas. And I grew up in Heber Springs, Arkansas. I consider that home. It's the type of place where you can walk down senior hall in the high school and see pictures of your mom and all her brothers and sisters, your grandparents and all their brothers and sisters. And was just really blessed and, and late to almost a you know, Junkoo Mellencamp style, small American Midwest town. It was just fantastic. I, I loved it. And today you live in Bella Vista, right? Right. Now I live in Northwest Arkansas. My wife and I laughed for a long time. We lived up and down I-40 for a decade, right? We lived in Memphis. We lived in Little Rock. We lived in Nashville. We lived back in Memphis, but we never spent much time up in the northern part of the state. And uh, my son, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, goes to the University of Arkansas. My sister lives up here in Pea Ridge. So we went and visited Northwest Arkansas and we're just blown away. You know, it's Walmart's world headquarters. So there's a lot of tax base money here, but there's these outstanding mountain bike trails and Beaver Lake. And I don't know, it's just a really, really cool part of the state to live in because there's there's good restaurants and Crystal Bridges Museum and and you know, stuff, but it's still Southern and friendly and you wave when you pass people on the road. So really digging it up. Now I've been, well, I said I've, I've partied at university of Arkansas for, you know, many, many times and actually had a, uh, 365 day ban from the city of Springdale, Arkansas for some antiques back, back in that era in the late nineties of partying down there. Oh, oh no. When I moved on the questionnaire, do you know why? And I lied. That's the only reason why they let me up here. So we're good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Oh, that is a beautiful part of the country. Do you, uh, you got to Casper? I, I don't much. I mean, it's, it's really, 
weird. I'm weird. What am I saying? You know, uh, there's one of those things I travel all the time. So when I'm home, I tend to stay around home. I, I like to fish around here. I, I play with my dogs, walk them, go to the dog park, stuff like that. But I, I really don't do much around home just because I'm here so infrequently. I really want to enjoy it. Fair, fair enough. So uh, growing up, did you have uh, you have any siblings or are you uh, only child? It depends on who you talk to. I act like I'm an only child, but I do have two sisters and a brother, but I'm the oldest. So I guess I'm the only child that matters, if you want to to put it that way. And I know they're listening and they they can't say anything back. So I will do that. But no, I've got, I've got a younger sister, Jenny, who's two years younger than me. Little sister, Maggie, who's eight years younger. My little brother, David, who's 10 years younger. My sister lives in Pea Ridge and her husband, Sean's the head ranger at Beaver Lake. Just wonderful family and their kids and they live out in the country so on Sundays that's where we go shooting we can go out there and you know put a few rounds through and just kind of relax love it my little sister Maggie is actually in full-time ministry she and her husband travel with a group of, of young people and go to churches and basically do revivals geared towards couples so they spend eight months a year on the road with their four kids all 10 and under I can't imagine and then my little brother David fortunately moved up here a couple years ago he's a marine has done a couple tours and, and just, man, I just love my little brother more than he went on the face of the planet. So I'm tickled to death. He's up here close. So uh, that was part of the reason we moved back was to be near family and let our kids be near family before they went off to college. And uh, I've, I've got a real good crew. And I didn't go into, I, I know at some point it was going to come up, but when you say move back, I remember, and we'll just, again, <laughs> jumping forward and back at the same time, you lived in Phoenix, and that was kind of where you got into off-road. And how long ago did you move from Phoenix back to Arkansas? I, I am not going to lie. I fell in love hard with the desert. I never even been to Phoenix until two weeks before I started a job out there. And I knew I'd gone native one year when the desert was a little bit less beige. And I said, ooh, it's awfully green this year. But that's where I met my off-road family. That's where I fell in love with uh, wheeling and crawling and hanging out with all the Jeep clubs and uh, really just grew a lot out in the desert and, and, and loved it. Stayed really connected, but come back to Arkansas every year, uh, sometimes twice a year. My wife's family's all from Arkansas as well. But my dad had a uh, longer term illness, had COPD. Uh, he was a mechanic for years and years and years and all those chemicals and things like that, just a number on the, the lungs. And was just really blessed to have an opportunity to, to be here during his last year before he passed everything just worked out. We were able to move back here. My son was already going to college here. Uh, my mom and dad had moved up here. So yeah, it was absolutely the right reason to move home. May was three years. I've been back almost three and a half years now. So time flies, doesn't it? Man, it's just weird. Time is an accordion. It goes really fast and really slow depending on what's going on. Well, sorry to hear about the loss of your father. I mean, that doesn't sit well, you know, for anybody uh, on any level, but if he gave you anything, it was the, the ability to, you know, that move back to Arkansas to be worth it and to, you know, be able to, I guess, celebrate, you know, his life with, uh, you know, all your family right there and you're able oh. to participate, right? Oh, you bet. And my, my dad's always with us. My love of music comes from him. You know, my, my son is almost like watching a version of him and my grandfather. So, you know, dad's legacy is, is super strong and we, and we miss him tremendously. I mean, I'll get emotionally ambushed sometimes. A certain Neil Young song will come on and I'll get all choked up. 
But, uh, you know, enough time has passed that I'm just super grateful for the time I did have with dad, the lessons he taught us, the example he set for us, you know, both as husbands, but as fathers, we're all trying really hard to live up to his standard. Miss the heck out of him. But like I say, he's here with us every day. So as a kid, what were your curiosities, you know, and along with that, what did you want to be when you like grew up one day when you were, Alan was going to be an adult and he's going to have to adult one day. What did he want to be? I was going to be an investment banker in Boston who drove a Jag. Michael P. Keaton was my hero. So yes, I'm a, I was born in 72. I'm a child of the eighties and I don't know. I think I watched the equalizer and saw an XJ six with dove gray leather interior and a walnut dash. And I had my whole life figured out by sixth grade. So that, that was my plan. Investment banker, Boston Jaguar. And today you are Jeeps and Jaguars. Well, I always have a little bit of that Jaguar in there. That's why I drove an XJ for so long. So I didn't say XJ and pretend it was either a Jeep or a uh, Jaguar because they're both XJs. But no, I loved it. And it was just something about that, that look and that feel. I loved English cars. At the time, I thought I wanted money. Obviously, I've had some life since then. And, and money is nice. Lord knows you got to pay the bills. But there's a lot more important things than that. Um, and ironically, that's actually how it uh, – those are really a, a conflated story, if you will. I mean, let's be really clear. In school, I had no friends or social skills. I read books. I was the drum major. You know, it was pretty much me, just shorter and fatter. It's just kind of the way it is. I actually had a Marine Corps ROTC scholarship to go to Boston University. That was my plan. And I, that's how I was going to pay for school and do all of that. And in between my junior and senior year of high school, Ironically, I do have a story that starts with this one time at band camp. I was coming back from band camp and fell asleep and just ran off the road, 17 years old, and went through the windshield and smashed my face and my nose and eye socket and cheekbone and lower jaw are all reconstructed and, you know, quite frankly, should have died. That has been a, a massive impact and influence on my life, both good and bad. But its first immediate influence was. Marine Corps doesn't want someone with a broken face. So my scholarship, my dream, going to Boston, my Jaguar and all that literally went away with a really long blink. How'd that impact you? I mean, mentally, that had to have just destroyed you, right? You know, it was weird. I went through a phase where, hey, you're 17, you almost die. You know, when you're 17, you feel bulletproof anyway. I went to the other extreme with, I should have died, so who cares? And it was just really reckless for four or five years. Obviously, I talk a lot. I like to talk a lot. I like to, to use my power for good, if you will. And I try to encourage people and try to build them up. And I really try to look for the best in people. I was the opposite of that for about five years. I was pretty much a, a butthead, uh, you know, as a spouse, as a friend, as, as whatever. I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine you like that. Well, I, but it was. It was true. It was one of those things where I had everything going for me. But there was a part of me going, this is borrowed time anyway, screw it. And so just really didn't have my head on straight. Yet again, this is hysterical because uh, there's a movie called Sliding Doors. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm sure we're not all huge Gwyneth Paltrow fans, but it's a fascinating movie about she's going down the stairs and misses the subway. And then it shows her going down the stairs and she catches the subway. And in one instance, she goes home and catches her boyfriend cheating. The other, she doesn't. And it shows how her life goes down two different paths just because of one choice. And I would never have gone to Memphis State if I hadn't had my accident. I would never have met my wife. I would never have gone more towards the artsy side of things because I went the complete opposite of investment banker 
and I became a history and music major and started playing in bands. You know, I wouldn't have my kids if I hadn't had that wreck because I wouldn't have met my wife. So in retrospect, that's probably the most significant thing that ever happened to me, good, bad and ugly. And it certainly colored my, my whole life since then. So a real inflection point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a- a- absolutely. I, you know, you, you may have two or three of those moments in your life. Sometimes you recognize them in the moment, sometimes you don't. But looking back, that was absolutely an inflection point. You grow up really fast at that point. Yeah, it was super significant. Ne- never forgotten it. And to some degree or not, you know, people ask, do you have regrets, this or that? I don't. I've done stupid stuff. I've done a bunch of stuff, but it's all led me to who and where I am. And I think it gives me empathy for people. I think it gives me a perspective uh, to put myself in other people's shoes, and I think it's part of what drives me to want to help other people is just that level of empathy that came from being such an emotional and physical wreck at age 17. Well, I think you grew up, you grew up a uh, hard and fast at that point. Like you, you know, you went through well, trauma. I mean, that's exactly what trauma is. It's going to reshape you. What was the catalyst to, to turn things around, uh, to embrace the, embrace the suck? What, what was the thing that happened to you? to flip the switch the other direction, because that is 180 degrees, what you're describing, 180 degrees from the guy that I know. You know, for, for me, honestly, it was church and kids, you know, uh, I met Jennifer my freshman year of college proposed three months after meeting her. And we were married eight months after I met her. I've never been known to be indecisive. Yep. That's the one we're coming up on 30 years this may, but I mean, we grew up together. So we took at least five or six years before we decided to have a family. And that's where a lot of that just kind of hard living and, and fun stories that sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't come from. But uh, when she was pregnant, something about having babies tends to, to make mamas want to go to church. And I wasn't going to fight it. I'd grown up in the church. You know, I was my grandpa was a preacher, for goodness sake. You know, I, I could play this game. Well, church had changed a lot since I was a kid. And it was a focus on a relationship with Christ. It was a focus on, you know, forgiveness and serving others and love and really had to go through a lot of counseling and healing to learn to love myself before I could love others. But that was, that was the real, you know, catalyst that changed who I was uh, as a husband, as a father, how I try to be in my day-to-day life. Again, I, 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 I down that route a long time. People ask, and I know that's not what we were, we were trying to do, but, but for me, that was genuinely the, uh, the difference maker Uh, And something that continues to make a difference, you know, 22 years later. We don't get to pick the things that shape us, right? They they tend to happen. I mean, don't get me wrong. You choose to sign up in the Marine Corps and they shape you, right? There are some of those instances, but yeah, by and large, it's uh, passive. It's not a, you know, an active selection. So, so Jennifer, when you guys were at Memphis state, you meet her, how, how did you first meet her? How did that go down? Oh my goodness sakes. She is. First of all, just amazing. And she doesn't know how to work a podcast, so she will never hear this. So I can say really nice things and not be self-conscious about it. I was at a friend's house. I didn't know anyone at Memphis, right? This was a last minute decision to go to Memphis State because my whole life had just gone away in a car crash. And my roommate knew a buddy at someone's house and we went over there. And oh my goodness, here was this beautiful woman who knew how to play cards. Playing cards was a big thing in my family. Hearts, spades, you know, just okey rummy, all the stuff you, you play in a, in a rural setting you know, with your grandparents and your great aunts. She kicked my butt. She was so good at cards. And, you know, we were also making a drinking game. So I might have been a little drunk, but by the end of the night, she was absolutely my hero. 
Well, it turns out my roommate had a little crush on her too. We're both a couple of just wussy 18 year old freshmen at college. And we lay in our bunks. He's like, you're going to ask her out? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll ask her out. Next night, you ask her out? No. Would you mind if I ask her out? Yeah, you ask her out. And we did this for two or three weeks, but we were at a bonfire down on the Mississippi River and twisted her ankle really bad. And it's the, it's the funniest thing, right? When you're, when you're least trying to impress someone is when you impress them the most. True story. And you may have discovered this, but I've got a little bit of a mother hen instinct in me. As much as I like to show bravado and you know, I'm this wild, crazy, let's go do stuff. When, when the chips are down, I, I typically like to take care of people and, and help. So I picked her up, carried her back to the car, drove her back to campus, carried her up two or three flights of stairs, put ice on her thing, drove her to the doctor, whole nine yards, literally not trying to be Mr. Impressive. And evidently that's when I was Mr. Impressive. You literally she, swept she, off her feet. Yeah, well, it helped that she fell. But, you know, uh, I was at least there to catch her. And, and, you know, that's when we started, you know, actually dating from there. She could see me as a, as a life partner and, and someone that was the type of person that she would want to spend her life with. And, you know, for me, it was just love at first sight. She was she was pretty and she would talk to me. Marry me. You know, I, I was I was all in. Go. All in. Is she into off-roading? She is not. We actually went through a period, especially living there in Arizona. We just had to figure out what that balance was. You know, I would get mad if she didn't want to go off-roading with me because I took it as her, you know, rejecting a sport and group of people I loved. And she would get mad that I would want to go off-roading after working all week and not want to spend time with her. And again, that's another area where some of the stuff they offer through the church, we went through some classes and learned to talk to each other and realized we were both wrong. So she's very supportive of racing and going out and off-roading. You know, it's not her bag. And so I stopped trying to, to really force her and drive her into that. And we find stuff that we can do together that we enjoy. And we've got a nice healthy balance, you know, for now. I'm sure I just jinxed it. But for right now, we've got a good, uh, good healthy balance. I, I swear you just described my wife. She fully supports all of this, but you won't catch her in the dirt. She's gone and she's okay without it. Fully can leave yeah. it. Oh, you bet. And you know what? It took me a while to be okay with that because I'm obviously a little bit passionate about stuff. And why don't you love this as much as I love this? You know, I, I just having to learn that, you know, not everyone sees the world the same way. A different doesn't mean wrong. So that was, that was really cool. Took us years to get there, but uh, it was really cool. So you guys are uh, effectively empty nesters right now, right? Yes. That's I guess I shouldn't fun. be that excited about it, but yes. <laughs> yeah. You're still you paying know, for the college, I, but you know. Well, yes and no. I mean, I was 22 years old and he's got a full ride Air Force ROTC scholarship to the University of Arkansas. Thank you, everyone who's listening, who pays taxes for helping pay for my son's education. And he will do his best to, to pay it back. And man, talk about fish and water. It's like that boy was made for Air Force. i uh, just really proud of him and the decisions he made. He's getting a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, so that's why he's in his fifth year. It took just a little bit of extra time. And he's still qualifying for pilot at this point. So that's his dream is, is to be a pilot in the Air Force. Uh, so he's wrapping up one phase of his journey and about to, dis- you know, this time next year, he'll be stationed somewhere. So that's interesting. And then my daughter, who's 19, who I freaked out last week because I told her, hey, you're almost 20. And she had a meltdown over 20. I'm like, <laughs> give it time. You know, <laughs> I talked to me again at, at 40, which would be awesome because that would mean I was 80. So I would be really cool if she would talk to me at that. You know, she goes to a, a, a little small private Christian university here up in Northwest Arkansas, and she's getting an, a, an art degree, art and illustration, which you would think, what, you're paying for an art degree? Well, my, art, my wife's got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in painting also. So this is my second art degree I'm, I'm buying. 
uh, and they're both for, for lovely women who uh, uh, love their art degrees. Well, I had to look it up where she goes to school because it's uh, she goes to John Brown University and and yep. everyone knows Miles, you know, and then myself were from the the same little town in, in Kansas. And the town nearest Oswatomie, Kansas, is known for you know John Brown, that John Brown Jamboree, you know John Brown. I know the history of John Brown, burning Kansas, and all of all of that that happened, uh, you know, uh, around slavery and around the Civil War. That was you know John Brown is this you know this folk hero in the, our right. part of the world. And so I'm like, I didn't know in his history. I don't feel like he was ever in Arkansas. So I had to go look up the university. To, what's the history of this? No, it's uh, it was completely a completely different John Brown, which makes sense. John Brown's two of the most common oh. names. Oh, the other John Brown. Yeah. Yeah. The no, other one. The, the university just celebrated their uh, 100 year anniversary last year. It's run mostly with uh, a foundation and, and gifts from alumni and stuff. It, it's, it's a much smaller school experience. Again, that's part of what we found. We visited lots of campuses with both kids and, Neither one was going after a particular degree that required them to go to a certain school for political reasons, right? They didn't have to go to Harvard to do this or didn't have to go to Stanford to do that. So we just wanted them to be a place where they were comfortable. We prayed about it. That's where they they wanted to be because it was important for them to finish what they committed to. And the environment has a lot to do with that. And I ruined Ivan. I wanted him to be a Razorback. So he grew up a Razorback fan, even though he lived in Arizona. So that's all he wanted to do. But that wasn't, that wasn't Kate's vibe. She didn't particularly want to go to a, a big school. And she just fell in love with a small school, small class size, really quaint campus. And just so proud. And that's one of the things as, as parents, I know some of the people listening don't have kids. Some of the people listening have younger kids. And I'm telling you, it's really cool to not only love your kids, but to like your kids as well as they become young adults. That's one of the most flattering thing as a parent to, to look at them and say, huh, they're actually good people. And, uh, and I'm proud of that. And it, again, it takes a village, but I don't know, just super proud of both kids. I think they're doing a great job. Yes, that's dad talking and I'm biased. That's fair. You know, pe- people who have met Ivan will back up. You know, he's, he's decent and, you know, he's more like his mother. I've kept Kate from everyone because she's more like me and, you know, no one needs two me's. So we're, we're good. That's hilarious. Well, are, are you guys, elite? I mean, you're obviously Razorback fans, but has he been a go to games now that you're up in that part of the world? I know this year has been fun, funky, but Arkansas has been playing. Have you made it to any of the ball games? Yeah, you know what? This technically counts as a legal record. We got screwed by the refs, by the way, and we beat Auburn. I just want to say right now, we should be two and one. <laughs> I was just about to bring that up because that you was one what? of the best but, games on last weekend. Oh. I, I'm a lifelong Razorback fan, and we've got a 20-year cycle. We were great in the late 60s. We sucked in the 70s. Great in the last 80s, sucked in the 90s. So, you know, we're midway through the suck cycle again. So it's really nice to have Coach Sam Pittman and to have some hope and competitive uh, football team. But, yeah, he lived on campus his first two years directly across from Reynolds Razorback Stadium. Being in ROTC, he did the color guard for most of those. In fact, he pulled some strings and got me in as accredited media so if anyone asks, driving line shot a University of Arkansas game at one point. I got to be on the <laughs> sidelines, and you know, te- awesome. technically I was shooting the color guard, but yeah, he very involved in campus life and has done his dear old dad a solid and helped me be involved in campus life as well. Yeah, I don't even have words for that. That's that's super cool. So you have been fully involved up there. Well done. Yeah, I love it. I want to jump back to a Memphis State story. So what what year did you graduate Memphis State? 
Actually, I only went to Memphis State in 90 and 91. That's where I met Jennifer. We both couldn't afford out-of-state tuition, so we moved back to Arkansas after we got married and went to the University of Central Arkansas. So I went to school there in 90 and 91, but I lived there in 94. I lived there in 97 and 98. So I've got quite a Memphis history. You said history. How did you end up with a history, a, de- a major in history? How does, how does one decide that's going to be their passion of study? You know, I, I love reading, remembering, and learning. And history was great because not only could you read, which again, I just, I've, I've always got a book. That's what I do on planes. I just, I really enjoy reading mostly fiction, doesn't matter. I just like reading. But history was also about understanding and thinking and drawing conclusions. And I don't know, it was just, it was, it was fascinating to me because you could learn from it. And I sucked at math. So that was about as far away from math as I could possibly get. So yeah, that was my field of study was as a history major. That is fascinating. (laughs) I ran away from math. Oh, God, I suck at math. I had a math teacher pull me aside and said, Alan, stop trying to figure out why math works. Just use the formula. And that was my problem. I was trying to figure out why physics worked. And I am not wired to figure out why physics or calculus or any of that stuff works. I just need to memorize the formula and, and go on. And that was actually one of my first areas to realize you don't have to know everything. Surround yourself with people that are experts in those areas And I learned real quick, I was not the math expert. So I have always professionally and personally surrounded myself with people that are better than me. If I'm ever the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room. And I learned that in a math class. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, along those lines, you know, I almost think that's a, almost a cliche at this point, the, you know, smartest guy in the room, you know, the, the, the whole Enron story on that. My belief on that is surround yourself with people that you aspire to be. If your dreams are to, to do whatever X surround your, yourself with people that are doing X and are the best at doing X. Don't be sitting here wanting to be an X, but you're surrounding yourself with Y people. Uh, so I partially agree for professionally. I, I love to surround myself with people that I aspire to be. And I look for people around me that I aspire to be, you know, I mean, it's, I almost feel selfish every year at King and Hammers because I get paid to have a master class with Emily. You know, Emily Miller is a friggin' genius, and I get paid to learn working with someone I aspire to be like. But I also like to spend time around everybody. You know, you can learn something from everybody, and everyone doesn't have to be a mentor or a hero. Everyone's got a got a story. So I like to just surround myself with people. I try to pick and choose who I emulate and want to follow. But I just I just really enjoy being around people. Now, there are some individuals I don't enjoy being around, <laughs> but people in general, I'm just, I'm really drawn to groups like that. Well, I, I, my statement on that is I love humans. I hate people. That's fair. That's kind of where I'm at. I, like, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love the human race. I, I love, you know, there's so many, so many friends, but you know, on a macro level, absolutely on a micro level. Oh man, man. Some, some of these, some of these folks, you know, you just want to have their, you know, ask them, have they had their head examined? But then I'm certain they're looking directly back at me saying and thinking the exact same thing. So I'm trying really hard to figure out why Dave wanted to put someone who likes people who seems to get along with everybody in a communication, social media position. It just seems like a real mismatch, you know, for personality type and job role. Well, Dave likes everybody. I mean, he's a real people person. That's uh, exactly. It, that's it, it seems it seems redundant. So I just always ask myself, what would Dave do? And that's how I handle almost every situation. The bridge that you have to cross before you get into that mindset is 
He likes you as long as you agree with him. If you don't agree, nah, that, we're not giving Dave enough credit. Uh, you know, I was going to say, not, necess- not necessarily. And not again, necessarily. We're, we're, we're all people. We all like where we're coming from. But uh, you know, part of why I'm even at Ultra 4, frankly, is I, I get to see a different side of Dave. I, I get to see something that makes it worth my time to be there and invest in a sport that I like. And a lot of it truly is, you know, beyond the, the you know, I, I blew up on you side of things, which he's actually gotten much better at. Uh, he genuinely cares. He'll do anything for about anyone. I tried to have a conversation with him last week where we need to talk business. He spent 10 minutes bragging on how awesome his daughter's doing playing bass guitar. You know, so that's that's the Dave I know and love and really enjoy doing stuff with uh, with Ultra 4. No, so, I, will, I will fully back you up on that. Dave has one of the biggest yep. hearts of anyone I know. Yep. There was a, a wreck in Las Vegas a couple of races ago uh, in Best in the Desert, and it was a fatality accident. There was a truck that got totaled and some things. It was it was all around nasty. Dave was trying to get in touch with, uh, you know, it was an Ultra 4 driver who was going to be in that race truck and the race truck was on the trailer. It came off and was sitting in the middle of the interstate. It was just all around bad. Mm. Dave was trying to get a hold of that, that, that guy to say, Hey, I have a brand new Ford sitting over there at Ogulus, Ogulus, Ogulus Ford there in Vegas. You're welcome to it for all of Torino. Go get the truck, use it. And th- that ultimately didn't end up taking Dave up on the offer, but for Dave to offer up a zero mile F I think it's an F four fifty. just go get it, use it for the race. And we know what, how trucks get treated on races. They are, you know, they're the workhorses of the desert, but they get lived in for days and it's, they're not the best well taken care of or yeah. cared for. It's kind of uh, yeah. the goal is still get the race car across the line. So, eh. again, you know, Dave, Dave's Dave, and he'll be the first one to tell you Dave is Dave. You know, good, bad, and ugly, but you, you know who he is and where you stand. And, and I certainly have enjoyed getting to, to know him better and to see that side of him because I just got to see a racer side for five years. And looking at it from the other end, I can't believe he's as calm as he is. It is freaking insane the week of King of the Hammers, all the demands that's going on, everything that could potentially go wrong. So, you know, a change of perspective certainly uh, changed my, my, my view uh, and respect level on that. Well, he subscribes to our theory that we've been discussing here, even, even not even theory, a mantra about surrounding yourself with the best, surround yourself yeah. with the best. And and he has done an amazing job of, you know, from Ryan Thomas to JT Taylor, to you, to Emily Miller, to, I, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It is a laundry list of an all, it's an all-star team. It's literally, I, an, I don't know, man, that, that JT character is kind of sketchy. I, I wonder crap jt's outside my window ah! <laughs> yeah, well, no, sorry yeah exactly with a, with a fork he knew i was going to say that no and, and again that's what i'm drawn to you know the ultra four team but also the drivers the ecosystem around it it's just a really cool thing that attracts really interesting and and smart and innovative people and that is very very attractive to me so again part of why i love the sport and the family and ultra four specifically is it really attracts quality people Zero disagreement from this side of the microphone. Let's talk about Nashville. How on earth and when did you end up in Nashville doing what you're doing? Because I'm going to let you roll that out. You're going to have to tell us why you were in Nashville and for four years that you were living there. Why? Because I'm I'm flipping curious, just so curious at this point, a side I'd never thought I'd see. I love Nashville. And in fact, until I had a love affair with Phoenix, that was the favorite place I had ever lived. 
fantastic town. But yeah, this was mid-90s. Everyone was getting out of college at the time. I played music since second grade. Piano player. You play the drum too, right? No, I play guitar and bass, but not drums. I program drums. Talk about influential Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails just changed my life musically when I realized I could have a band with a laptop. I traded a car for a laptop to sequence music. And that was in Nashville, ironically. But at this point, I'm, I'm 22, 23, 24-ish. You know, everyone's done the college thing. My wife's got her degree. We don't have a family yet. And the band was going pretty good. So we decided to take a couple of years and moved to Nashville with the whole rest of the band. Uh, the band's name was Stevens Law. We lived in a big two-story house with a basement. You know, we all took night jobs so we could practice during the day and not piss the neighbors off. And, you know, we made a serious run at playing music for two or three years and, uh, you know, loved it. We, we were good. We were fun. Obviously, it didn't pan into a career. But that was, again, one of those things where I'm so grateful I got a chance to just live that gypsy life and chase that dream and not spend my whole life wondering, you know, what if. And my wife was selling paintings at the time. But again, all these things working together, my part-time job was Kinko's. I worked Sunday through Thursday at Kinko's. Not only could I get free flyers, I could be off on Friday and Saturday to go gigging. But that's where I learned Macintosh. That's where I learned how to use computers. And again, skill sets that literally pay for a much better paying job today was learned working at a Kinko's in Nashville in the mid-90s. So that was a blast. We got to travel, got to do all our stuff, all the standard band things. You know, I cannot tell you how grateful I was to actually celebrate my first New Year's Eve and not be playing. But uh, yeah, piano player is a, a part of me. And that was fun to let that be the main focus for a good four years. And I still play. I still play regularly. I played in church for years when we were there in, uh, in Nashville, taught both my kids how to play. So music is a big part of my uh, escape and what I do. I love road tripping. You know, I drive from Arkansas to Johnson Valley every year. Part of it is just to listen to tunes in the car and see God's country and do back roads and stuff like that. So that very much is a, a key part of who I am and what I am. And it's it's all different styles and genres. I lived in Memphis and Nashville for so long, blues has ruined me. You can put me in front of a Hammond B3 organ and start a one four five blues riff, and we will drink beer and play music for the next six hours straight. You know, you give me a good ZZ Top cover band and stuff like that. And that's, that's just right in my uh, my wheelhouse. But yeah, Nashville was fantastic. And towards the end of it, we decided it was time, you know, to start real jobs. I'd been married uh, seven years at that point, And Jennifer and I were ready to start a family. And work took me to, to Memphis at the time. And that's how we left Nashville. But always just one of my favorite places. And you know how in your memory, you, you build something up as kind of that golden period. And, and Nashville was kind of my golden period. It was mid-20s, doing stuff you love, with people you love, pretty magical time. I'm sure it wasn't as awesome as my memory thinks it is, but uh, absolutely one of my favorite towns on the face of the planet. Well, we have the ability to romanticize about those things, right? When you look back at memories or you think back to memories, yeah, you definitely romanticize them. They, they get glossied, right? You gloss them, you know, you gloss them up a little, but that's okay. Yeah, you know, absolutely. hugging, hu- hugging those warm, glossy memories get you through some cloudy days every once in a while. And, you know, uh, uh, again, you kind of have to have that comfort memory to go to because as we're all aware, some days, you know, suck. But it's, it's just always fun to take that trip back to, you know, this or that. We we actually went back last summer. Our daughter wanted to take a trip before she went to her freshman year of, of college. And she wanted to go to Nashville. She'd heard us talk about it her entire life. And we went and saw the old house. 
she drank coffee at the old coffee house we drank at by Bellevue, you know, university. And it was fascinating to experience Nashville through my 18 year old daughter's eyes as she was going to record stores and discovering things that we had discovered at about her same age, you know, 20 years before. So I don't know, still a cool town, romanticized or not. Uh, I always have learned to look forward. What's the next thing you can't go back. I love hanging on and hugging those old memories, particularly the, the warm, shiny ones. And that's certainly Nashville. So you guys went from Nashville to Memphis for work. And then somewhere in there, you end up moving to Phoenix. Yeah, stopped in Little Rock for a little bit too. Like I say, we lived up and down I-40. I'd spent probably 10 years in retail. If you count Kinko's like retail. And I, I was out golfing with a buddy from church, a guy named Ted Clouser, And he goes, man, you talk a lot. Have you considered sales? And I'm like, no, but I do talk a lot. And he owned a small computer company called PC Assistance. And they were going to start selling this dental software called, you know, Dentrix. And I didn't know anything about software, didn't know anything about sales and barely went to the dentist. Sure, I'm in. And that, you know, honestly starts, that was in uh, the year 2000. I started a 20-year career in dentistry that, again, no one sits down and says, ooh, I want to be in dentistry my whole life. Yet you turn around and blink and you spent 20 years in a certain industry. Uh, It's a pretty amazing journey. But that was the big pivot. And that, uh, you know, spent two or three years in Arkansas selling software there and had an opportunity to go into a consulting role to apply my business background, my computer software development background, and my sales background, do it as a, as a business consultant for a firm in, uh, in Phoenix. So that's how we, we ended up there. It was weird. Never been out there. Didn't really pick it. But, you know, the Lord would put things on your heart. And I felt it was the right thing. And my wife came to me and felt it was the right thing. And we took a big step of faith, which is a story unto itself. And uh, literally found the next phase of our life and where our kids grew up and and some of the closest people that we consider family in in our lives. You know, Bob McNeely and Andrew McLaughlin and and Michael Dobby and others all came from the 12 years we spent in Phoenix. My kids consider Phoenix home. You know, that's what they, they grew up. They were five and seven when we moved. So to them, Phoenix was home. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, I, I can absolutely see that. So, well, let's talk about your role today. You're still selling dental software. You work for Patterson, uh, Patterson Dental, very big, you know, dental company. Were you with them in Phoenix or were you, did they allow you to move anywhere? Kind of. That was kind of a funny story. I, I worked for them for four years in Little Rock took a different opportunity, which took me to Phoenix. It's still in the dental area. In fact, it was working with small businesses. That's actually part of what got me into marketing, working with marketing with small businesses such as dentists and you know, developing teams and recruiting the right players and doing business strategies. And again, my whole working career has been like getting paid to go to college. It, it's really, really cool. Well, it was so cool that Patterson Dental bought us seven years ago. So suddenly I was the old new guy that came over. We had developed a software called OnTrack, which was goal setting and, and metrics and matrix and, and things where, again, you'd set goals. It measured your performance. This was some one of the early cloud softwares, and it was, it was something that they wanted to buy. So I found myself back at Patterson, but, but much higher up the food chain at that point. So I've been very involved in building new software, living in the cloud space, one of the things I'm really good at, and I, I don't say this, you know, braggy, I just say this, and again, knowing your strengths and knowing your opportunities, I'm good at envisioning things. I'm good at picturing the final product. I really like coming up with creative solutions. 
I'm not so good at the details between here and there. So I got to work with a team where I could help dream new software and how do we migrate to the cloud and how do we, you know, really make the user experience, you know, really good. And I've been partnered with a phenomenal development team that's much smarter than me that can actually go build that stuff. So again, it's kind of a weird day job for me. And it's, it's funny. There's a whole group of people who only know me in suits. And there's a whole group of people who only know me in camo cargo shorts and my dusty gnome persona. But, uh, you know, they're all different parts of me, ways to be creative, ways to make a difference, ways to impact people. I just love the off-road part a lot more, but the not off-road part pays a lot better. Oh, well, yeah, for sure it does. I get a crack up out of your uh, your your social media selfies. You are uh, you're this, this king of the. Once I get on the airplane, I sit down and take a uh, a selfie. And for all of us who you know, we know you uh, clearly have a life outside of off road. Clearly have a life outside of Ultra Four, where you're not wearing a black flat bill flex fit cap, not wearing a pair of you know sunglasses, not having a uh, what do you call the 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 dust kind of towel uh, it's not a towel but it's a rag that you wrap around your head it's a it's a it's a smog but my daughter calls it my off-road scarf so oh. it has become known as my off-road scarf here at the house and you're routinely pictured in that so that's what so we you have this yep. this uh image you know that's the image and and that's what's burning our head but then you go to social media and you see alan sitting on a plane clean cut clean shaven no hat, no sunglasses, no schmuck, you know, around you, you know, you're, you're good. Well, and that, that's half the joke. Obviously I like to joke. I like to have fun. The airplane selfie actually started with Michael Davi and a part of the uh, higher ground four by four club. Cause Michael hates selfies, hates social media, hates self-absorbed a-holes that take uh, selfies all the time. So of course, my job was to take a selfie all the time when I'm in an airport or a plane and do it in black and white because that makes it artsy. And it just kind of turned into its own thing. I mean, I love that you appreciate and get a kick out of that, but that's literally the back end of a seven-year practical joke between Michael Davi and I. That uh, is one of my favorite things about travel. The long play. That's what that is. That's just the long play. It is. Hey, just be glad we didn't start with bathroom shots or my social media would be a completely different animal. <laughs> uh, yeah, no comment, right? No comment. I think that like, like Roxy would appreciate that. Roxy likes her a good bathroom. She will take pictures of bathroom stall doors. That's her thing. I'm scared. I'm scared to death of Roxy. So whatever Roxy says is right. Amen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, uh, most everyone else has implemented as well with her. Through all of this pandemic and, you know, working remotely and uh, Zoom calls and video calls, which was interesting enough that my whole setup, I don't know what's going on. I've just had a kind of a bad run of interviews. The interviews have been awesome. The content's been awesome. But it's been, uh, yeah, I'm blaming you. No, it's just uh, the equipment. I had had mine to get, it's it's, something's out getting. It's like the Wi-Fi or the mic or it's the laptop. It's been kind of nonstop. I changed microphones here recently for this fall. I think I'm going to change them back. I, I I think I think that's it. I messed with I messed with a good thing, and that's like the the Ultra Four thing, right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. And right. And I I tinkered. I feel like I feel like the world is coming apart on that. But where I was going with that was you actually put on your question. You had a funny story, and I assume it's during the pandemic that you're doing a Zoom call that you're wearing your. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Oh God! You're wearing yeah. 
your you know your dress shirt tie. Um, only you know, I'll, I'll I'll set the I'll set the stage a little bit here. This was in Arizona when I was younger and still cared, and uh, we had just built this this new software. Back so to it's one not any time recent. This is even better. Oh, so is that everyone can relate to this? This is you know, I was still a junior executive at the time, and this was back before you know Patterson had bought us. And this was actually my big shot. The big bosses were setting up a demo with Patterson Dental, and I was going to get to demo this new software on track. So you know me, man. I overthink everything. I'm like, okay, I want to get up early. I want to go to the office. I'm more comfortable in the office. I'll be in my environment. I'm going to crush it. And I, I got up early and I made my cup of coffee and sat down on the recliner. And next thing I know, my wife Jake going, honey, do you have to go to work this morning? So I jump up just in a panic. I had fallen asleep in the chair. I'm in my drawers. You know, I, I spilled coffee all over me. I've got two minutes to get set up for this demo. So I set everything up, nick a time. I log in just in time to hear, you know, our, our president at the time say, all right, so we're going to turn it over to Alan to give the presentation. I lock up, completely lock up. I, the, the words that came out of my mouth were the bands, the pen based on the band, look at the pretty colors. I mean, something I spent two years of my life building, I couldn't even articulate and just, just friggin' froze, just died. My, my CEO at the time recognizes and goes, you know what? We're having a little bit of a connection problem. We're going to give Alan a chance to, to get reconnected. Let me tell you a story. You know, so he, he provides me cover. I step around the table, trip over the cord, fall on the floor, catch my laptop, land in the dog bowl. There's water everywhere. And my wife comes running around the corner. And evidently, my face just said, unemployed. Because she starts calling down Jesus and Moses and Abraham and every saint known to man. And I'm dropping F-bombs left and right. And then, you know, scared I hadn't unplugged my microphone. And maybe I was F-bombing them. And just total and complete panic. And get everything set back up just in time to hear Dave say, so we'll turn it back over to Alan. Then I get a bit demo of my life. So <laughs> just one of those things, you know, just the image of they didn't know. Then I'm in my drawers laying in dog water in my kitchen in Phoenix about to have a heart attack because I'm blowing my shot. That always stuck with me. So I'm really enjoying watching everyone learn how to do Zoom and work from home and be out of their comfort zone. And I've thoroughly enjoyed watching other people have their dog bowl moments trying to figure out technology. It's, it's been highly entertaining seeing what goes on uh, uh, behind the camera, if you will, when people don't know their cameras on. Or even when they know the cameras on. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, I, I can't tell you how many like teams meetings I've had in the last week, you know, just in the last month, couple months, six months, eight months, you know, what yeah. are we, we're eight months into this 14 day. Right. <laughs> hey, that, that, that curve should be flattened pretty soon. Right. Oh yeah. But, uh, no, but, I, I still have people to this day, especially now that I'm working for Patterson that were in that meeting, but every once in a while, they'll just look at me and say, the plan is the plan based on the plan. Look at the pretty colors. Why are you working for us, you moron? And we all just laugh and have a good kick out of it. But, oh, that was one of the most panic moments involving technology I think I'd ever had. No pants, dog bowl, doing the biggest presentation of my life. Well, oh. I appreciate you telling that story because that's a pretty that's a pretty bad story. <laughs> it's really bad if you visualize because they were tidy whities Well, there, there we go. There was a scene on top. <laughs> Picture, you know, memory don't, is burned. Don't, don't. We don't need to contribute to the national drinking habit of people picturing me in tidy whities. So we'll just move right on. And on that note, so you're in Phoenix and you started get you get into off road. How did that leap happen? Did was it a Jeep? Was it a Toyota? 
Was it a group of guys? Was it coworkers? How did you end up in that scene? And how did you end up like running around with like Andrew McLaughlin and, and, and that company? Yeah. You know, I had a motorcycle when I was younger, but I made the mistake of it being my daily driver and, you know, got hit by a little old lady and, and I have a fake knee in my, my left knee. So I knew motorcycles were never really going to be my thing yet, even though I love them and respect them. And I'm super je- jealous of Terry and everyone, you know, in this motorcycle, you know, culture. It's just, it's just not going to happen for me. But we moved to Arizona. I was flying most of the time, so I didn't need a, a great gas mileage car. The weather was perfect. So I bought a 91 TJ or a 91 uh, YJ, one inch body lift, 31s, chrome two bumper, brush hard front rear. I was every starter kit, you know, Jeep Wrangler uh, out there, but I don't care. I loved it. I top, took the top off, took the doors off. It was a jungle gym for the kids. You know, we do such soul crushing trails as back way to crown king and think we had really accomplished something. But what it did was help us fall in love with the desert, fall in love with the state, fall in love with exploring. And through that, I got connected with Higher Ground 4x4, a local Jeep club. In fact, I I met them when I was going to look at buy another Jeep. And you know me, I'm a shy, quiet wallflower. So I just walked up and started talking to them. We all became buddies and just, again, some of my absolute best friends and brothers uh, to this day. And uh, started started wheeling. Now, Andrew was part of the Undertakers, the Arizona Undertakers, the big bad boy off-road club there in Arizona. You know, high, higher ground. Our our symbol was the, you know, Jesus fit lifted on road tires. So, you know, we, we were the Christian boys you would call to go wheel with you if you had a hard obstacle you wanted Jesus, you know, to, to wheel with you. But our approach was always one of just be ourselves. You know, we didn't beat anyone over the top. We were friends with everybody, but they they knew we were Christians and knew we went to church. And that was kind of our, our deal. And it was fun. Ran with the Arizona Rock Rats back in the day. That was a really cool group of people. Joe Darrow, Hackle, all those guys. I know I'm dating myself for all the Arizona people, but the, the Rock Rats were, were a big influence on me of wanting to get, you know, tons and 40s and all that type of jazz. And I did. I'd worked my way up. I bought a Jeep. It actually turned out to be Toys by Troy's old competition Jeep. Aluminum, everything, force, you know, Atlas, whole nine yards. I Way too much Jeep for me. I had no idea how to drive it, but hey, I liked it. You know, got to be a rock crawler. Well, that was also uh, coming up on my 40th birthday. And that was also when Dave announced this Everyman Challenge. Now, I'm not going to say it was a midlife crisis, but who doesn't want to be a race car driver? Absolutely. So, Everybody. So, that became my 40th birthday present myself. This was six months out. You know, the club's going to get together. We're going to go do a Jeep race. It was everybody's, you know, build the car in the garage. And Andrew was on one of the boards and reached out to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm racing this year, too, in the 4400 class. I would like to have a modified and a stock. Would you, you know, I'll help you if you'll help me. And that's where I really got to know Andrew and the Westroll Off-Road Racing Team. And, man, just immediately got engaged into a, a subculture that I, I fell in love with. We did a lot of the dirt ride races. Charlie Mowers, one of the, the biggest influences on, on me early, because I, honestly, if I've got to give anyone credit for where I'm at now in what I'm doing, we were sitting in a, a really cheap hotel in uh, Tucson. She was kind of going through a driver school meeting for everyone. She says, all right, everyone point to the person on your team. That's a nerd. That's always on their phone. And they all point to me and started laughing, right? I was the immediately identified nerd on the team. And she says, that's one of the most important people on your team. 
And then she talked about more. And you know what? Andrew really embraced that, you know, even though I can't weld and I can't fabricate, I mean, I am just in awe of these people who can take metal and, and, and just do works of art. There's so much innovation and brilliance in our sport. And again, I'm just in awe because I can't do that. But I can tell stories and do do marketing and, and help put together sponsors. And I speak marketing. So when we're talking about impressions and marketing campaigns and how we're going to do this and do that, it helped me find a place on the team. And, and Andrew, besides being a really good friend, helped the rest of the team value that role. So that's part of how we worked with ESOB. That's part of how we kind of expanded our out-of-market and, you know, always a lot of fun. Everyone's poking fun at you. They still, I can't even show a wrench on Facebook without 15 people reminding me I'm not allowed to touch tools. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, digging, but that's how I got to King of the Hammers. That's how I got to introduce And Man, it was just an addiction, you know, went once and just couldn't believe it. Went to the next race, race Dirt Riot, you know, Big Rich and Shelly for the time period they were running that Dirt Riot was exactly what it needed to be for drivers like me and Andrew to learn how to race, learn how to break our vehicles. It was a, it was a wonderful farm league that you raced and you did and you made sure racing was for you and then you moved up to Ultra 4. So it was 2014, I guess, before I started really racing Ultra 4. So I spent 2012 and 2013 kind of racing Dirt Riot. So had you been to a King of the Hammers prior to men in your tree feet to 4,500? Oh, no, no, no. I had no idea. It. Yes. And that, and that first year, that was such a cluster. I know we said we couldn't drop other words. So I'll just say cluster and everyone can fill in the blank. But that first year, the EMC, I think we showed up on Saturday. We raced on Sunday. Most of us had to be back at work on Monday. We didn't even get to see King of the Hammers that year. We had no idea what we were doing. So I don't feel like I truly experienced King of the Hammers until 2013. And I'm to the point now where I can spend 10 or 12 days and it is just literally the seminal event I schedule my whole year around is my King of the Hammers time. That is the end all be all for me. But yeah, I shoot, I'd never, I didn't even really know what King of the Hammers was other than, you know, Tony Pellegrino and uh, Joe Darrow talking about it in the shop every once in a while. And this was two or three years in and no one thought it would last, but Hey, I didn't care. I was racing got to be a race car driver and now look where it is right right charlene's amazing she's she's also one of the first people in the scene in the certainly the california off-road scene that i got to interact with and you know she was involved with you know dave brought her in uh jeff no brought her in uh, back in 2009 and i had the distinct amazing adventure of spending I don't know, it was like four or five days in an RV with her and Wayne Israelson and BSI and wow, you know the, the Slauson brothers, Adam Woodley. Oh my God! I mean, I just could start going. Chris Pook. God, I mean, just it just uh, Dan Barcroft. Jeez I mean, it, Man, it, seriously, it, it was I'm a so pretty, glad that bus didn't crash. My it was God. a pretty loaded bus, but yeah, Charlene and and Wayne. I mean, you can't get better than that. But yeah, she was a. She's something else. And you never saw her without a camera or a camera bag back in, back in those days. And even still somewhat today, but which is kind of how, when I see you, even if I see you buzzing around, you always still have your big camera with you. Well, that's how it actually got started. You know, you, you do that first year racing and you, you go to look for your assets because you're trying to make your sponsors happy. You're trying to build social media presence. And, you know, let's be honest, that first year racing, let's roll off road. You know, we, we weren't Campbell Enterprises. 
right? It wasn't like there were 50, you know, photographers out there just looking for our car. We'd be thrilled if we could see the corner of a quarter panel in a passing shot, you know, and because that was a need for the team, and I've always had a creative background anyway, whether it was with computers or graphic design or music or whatever, that's some some really high quality people, you know, Will Gentile, I talked about already, but Kyle Wells, Doug Denault, uh, Ryan DePonte, De I mean, these guys didn't give me all their secrets, but they were accepting and open and helped encourage me. And uh, we'd share tips or tricks. And I, I really watched them to see how race photographers behaved, how they worked, how they interacted with teams. And I just loved their work. And so it gave me something to to emulate. And that's what I did. I would go out and I would I would shoot our stock class car. I would hop in my car, I would race a modified race, and I would get out, and I would grab a camera, and I'd go shoot Andrew's 4400 car, just so we had some content for our own marketing. And then it turned into, you know, Hammers Week, and I would shoot all the other races, and again, just kind of worked my way up blue collar through the the ranks just by, by putting in work. But even then, you know, my approach, I, I knew I was no, you know, Kyle Wells, so I would position myself at race mile three. And I would be mom and just make sure I got a picture of everybody, you know, because some cars don't make it to race mile four. So that's, that's how I got to know quite a few people was just making sure I took it and just practice rep after rep after rep and trying to learn from those around me and continuing to emulate people whose work I admire. And then it just it just kind of happened. It became a thing. And then JT started calling me the, the, the shutter gnome. And let's be frank, I'm five seven when I stand up straight. I'm not exactly, you know, pro football material. So the gnome part stuck. And I'd always taught my kids, you know what? Lean into it. Don't get offended about it. Just lean into it. I was dusty and I just kind of invented this dusty gnome persona because those social media handles were available on, on Instagram. And that kind of became an outlet for this alter ego photographer who wanted nothing more than to be Paolo Varoli in his life. I want to be that cool Italian dude who travels the world and, and takes photos and is just so cool. And, you know, that'll never happen, but it's good to have aspirational dreams. When the time came to stop racing, which again, racing's in my blood and in my heart, and I miss it every single time I hear a car start up. Uh, you, you'll never get that out of you. But races, in my opinion, are won and lost in between the races. And my, my day job and my family obligations were keeping me from prepping the car to a level that uh, was up to anyone's standard. And it made more sense to step away from racing since I couldn't do my best. I really don't like half-assing stuff. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you that. Like, what was what was the, yeah. you know, we all have our, you know, everything must come to an end, right? It, all good things come to an end and and you come to a realization and uh, what that ends up looking like for you. And I, I was curious uh, what that was that ended up taking oh, you that's, out. That's what it was. You know, we were breaking in a new car. This was the I Believe car, the one that we literally honestly started for the first time 20 minutes before the green flag at King of the Hammers. We're at ADS tuning the shocks, trying to burp air out. And the very first time I drove that car was a green flag at King of the Hammers that year. Uh, in fact, we went off the first two jumps, and after the second jump, the steering wheel had come off. It was in my hand, and I look at my co-driver, Terrible. and he looked at me, and we just laughed, and we put the steering wheel back on, and you know, we were racing King of the Hammers. It's all part of the adventure. I've had that conversation with multiple people recently that have yeah. all had that same experience where they've lost the wheel. The steering wheel's come. So, and it honestly, it just it just wasn't fair for the team either. 
that I didn't have time to, to prep it and their energy in building it and being at the races weren't being rewarded. So it was strategic. It was hard. My son co-drove with me all of those years. I mean, how awesome is that to on summer break, be able to race dirt ride and ultra four. My son's favorite race is Glen Ellen to this day. So he was about to graduate college and it was just kind of the end of an era. But here's where photography allowed me to stay connected with a sport that I loved. You know, by that point, I had built up some friendships. I was doing some freelance work for Driving Line. I was, you know, the headshot guy at this point. Anytime you needed a headshot for something, I was already taping my, my people picks. So I was able to really transition from being a driver, but still getting to be at every event by contracting with uh, Driving Line. And they were gracious enough to let me write the stories and, and again, always be the secondary photographer. I was never going to step on the, the Kyle Wells and the Shannon Whitmore and, you know, all the, the people who were their main photographers. That was their deal. But I loved it. And it helped me enjoy the sport differently because I wasn't under a car or stressed about my strategy or things like that. And, you know, my wife was happy because as we're all aware, you don't make money racing a race car. No, not at all. Now, all of a sudden, I'm making money going to races. Now, my hobby was paying for itself, which was pretty cool. And again, being a people person, you know, I learned really quick that if I couldn't make the race in person, call people on their drive home on Sunday. You know, sometimes it was good. And and, and sometimes you got Tom Ways after he disagreed with how time was done in Kentucky. But you know what? You always got an authentic story from people in the heat of the moment. And that's what I tried to do was, was bring that into the writing. And I think one of the biggest compliments I ever got was actually from Eric Miller, who said, when people ask what I do, I have them read your stories because I think they can relate to what you do. And that just meant so much. I wasn't writing from a technical aspect. I wasn't trying to prove to anyone how smart I was or anyone else was. Just wanted to share what I loved with anyone who would read it and look at it. And again, I'm so grateful to to Kristen and the whole crew at Driving Line for for giving me that opportunity. I, I'm honestly still torn. I, I get to do a lot of that for Ultra Four now, which is which is great. But there was something kind of cool about being a freelance, dusty gnome photographer who I could take off my corporate persona and just go be the dusty gnome in the desert for a week, or go chase cars in Baja. And, uh, it was a tremendously relaxing and, and fulfilling escape for me to, to get to be that photographer character for a little while. Yeah. Just a relief. Yeah, you bet. The thing that really gets me is as I roll through photography, certainly headshots and certainly, you know, looking at, looking at, uh, at race coverage, it's to the point, And I've told you this, we've had this discussion in the past. I can, mm-hmm. I can tell you not always, but for the most part, I can tell you who the photographer is by the photo, I don't even have to see their, their icon or their emoji car or whatever to the side of their name and see, I can tell when it's Shannon Whitford, I can tell when it's Lana Scott, I can tell when it's Ryan Del Ponte, I can tell when it's you. And you guys have these very, you, you talked about, you know, sitting out there at race mile three and getting a, just being mom and taking pictures of everyone, but those reps, you got your style and you figured out what worked and what didn't work. And you were honing your craft. And you honed your craft in a certain way and no one, I mean, it's signature. Like I said, it's, it's so signature. It's, it's crazy. And then those guys and and ladies, they've done exactly the same thing. And I find that, I think that's for me, I I find that to be a pretty cool deal that they made a, uh, you know, a visual representation that is their signature. They don't even need to watermark it. Like it's, you know, whose it is. 
and, and again, a history major. So I tend to look at the past and analyze it. I was shocked how much photography was similar to music. You know, a, a, a Strat sounds different than a Les Paul. So your Nikon guys are going to shoot a little bit different than your Canon guys. Certain people develop and hone certain sounds to where you don't even know who the song is. You know that's Slash. You know that's, you know, the late Eddie Van Halen. You know who that is based on their sound. And I early on started discovering the same thing. And again, that's why I bring up the the Kyle of the world and the Wills of the world. You know, they were signature sounds that really appealed to me visually uh, that I wanted to, to, at first you emulate, and then you do theme and variation and figure out what makes that your voice. And the other thing I love doing, quite frankly, is encouraging new photographers to get into the, the sport. And I'm uniquely positioned to be able to do that now with my role at, uh, you know, Ultra 4. We have to, you know, crack down for hammers a little bit. I mean, that's one of the, the banes of our existence is how many iPhone photographers show up and try to pretend they're actual media. I mean, I get influencers are important in this and that, but we limit media at King of the Hammers intentionally. And again, that's where I got a ton of respect for Emily and her vetting process. But at the regional races, at nationals, I always like to encourage whether you're shooting for a team or a local news outlet or this is just something that appeals to you, you know, fill out the media application, come to the meetings. I try to partner people up with, you know, seasoned photographers so that, you know, obviously we want people to be safe, but we also want them to do good work and tell great stories. And so I think having that background helps me just be really sensitive to wanting to be an inclusive place that brings in creatives creates a place for them to really tell their story and by extension tell the story of our family tell the story of the racers tell the story of the the support teams you know atterbury's crew that came down to uh freaking san felipe i mean they traveled as a unit i thought it was a rock concert coming through it was all just friends and family and multi-generational and matching t-shirts they come to every event now. They're family just as much as the Ultra Four crew. And to capture those stories and, and to see that and to participate even vicariously through that type of feeling is, is just something that helps people feel good and, and feel a part of it, even if they can't be there. You're telling us this, and I've seen this firsthand. And and I went through uh, Rhonda Howell, you guys, you know, this yes. her first event was to shoot, was actually hammers now you guys you know emily's process that well emily's process let me in so obviously there's some flaws in the system it's it's a flaw it's a flawed system we're still refining yes we're we're gonna work the bugs out maybe next year but Rhonda, you know end up shooting koh and she's she is a you know a very good photog and but she's she's like oh i'm still learning i'm still figuring things out and i see her work and i'm just like i think you've got it i mean i think you're good her acceptance into that world and being paired up with different people to go out, you know, all those photographers at the races, they, they do, they kind of click together and like, where's, you know, they all do their homework together and said, okay, these are good site. You know, these are good locations this time of the race, this time of the day. And then we move and they all kind of team up. I found that to be not that they were nomadic, but they are kind of nomadic. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. My new home on the lake beds, actually the media tent. And I know that's sad. I try to go down and see Let's Roll every chance I get. I try to go hang out where the Ultra 4 crew is. But, you know, that media tent is is really where I found a second family out on, on the lake bed. It, it's its own subculture. And interestingly enough, and Rhonda's a great example. I, I think she's a phenomenal photographer. I don't think she gives herself enough credit for the work that she does. And I try to encourage her or find opportunities every chance I can for her to shoot. 
But that kind of became my role on the lake bed, if you will, even when I was shooting for driving line. I just have this drive to include people in what's going on. So I would look for new photographers. I would look for people who looked lost. I would always volunteer to Emily. Hey, if you need people driven around the lake bed, I've got a couple extra seats. I'll take them out. I didn't view anyone as competition. I viewed it as a chance to really be an ambassador for the sport. And if these press people and if these photographers had a great experience and had great content, that would be reflective in their story. And so that's where Shannon and I got to know each other pretty well. Talk about another you know, mentor. Shannon Welsh was just really someone influential on, on what I did and how involved I was. And I always like to volunteer and you know work for her. That's most of my questions. She always joked about, hey, Shannon, hey, Shannon. Mine's usually, hey, Shannon, where can I help? You know, because you always need an extra pair of hands somewhere. And that was a very natural place for me in the media tent was to kind of help newbies, if you will, find their their setting, show them where to shoot, give them tips and tricks. Because I know firsthand how addictive it is. So yeah, I'm like the little crackhead candy pusher getting people addicted to Ultra 4 out on the lake bed. Well, I, I totally value the uh, ex- the offers extended by Ultra 4, the whole organization, and including me in, in that media group and all the all the, oh man, just everything, you know, access to that media tent for me during uh, the ha- hammers this year was, well, it, it gave access to guys like you, you know, Shannon Welch and I, we had numerous meetings in there between us, you know, brainstorming and game planning. And, you know, I, you know, just, it, it, it was, it was awesome. It's, I think a lot of things happen in that tent that maybe people necessarily aren't aware of, but it, benefits the overall experience, not just on the lake bed, but globally. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happen in that tent that people don't need to know about. So, you know, again, let's, let's let what happens in Vegas stay in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll go there. So, okay. So I, we kind of jumped ahead and jumped back and we're kind of in this kind of my, my standard feel, right? That's kind of how I am uh, a little bit of, Hey, look squirrel. But in January of 2019, Dave Cole calls you. And as we know what your role is, we've described a role. You're kind of describing your role now, what you did during KOH 20. Uh, but January of 2019, Dave Cole calls you. You're in California. You're in San Diego. I've set the stage. How'd it happen? Well, that's what's so funny. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. As a personal life goal and still one of my personal life goals, want to continue to be more and more involved with Ultra 4. Uh, It's something I truly care about. I'm passionate about. To be honest, I saw myself working with Shannon. You know, what's a role I can play as we go? So, yeah, I'm I'm in Cali on a completely unrelated day job trip. You know, we're we're selling software to a group practice down there and who doesn't want to go to, you know, San Diego in early January. So I jumped all over that trip. And, yeah, I got a call from Dave and he goes, you probably heard the news already, which Actually, it's kind of funny as a communication guy. There's a lot of news I'm not in, and I'm okay with that. But I did not know that that Shannon had left. And so he he shared that that news with me, and he said, you know, I've talked to a couple people, and, you know, would you be interested? I understand you have a day job. I'm not asking you to, you know, throw all that away. But here we are, you know, a month out from Hammers. You've got some experience, and you work well with Emily and others. Would you like to talk about it? So, Dave? I happen to be an hour south of you right now. You got beer? I said, sure. So 1130 at night, drove up to Temecula, sat down with Dave, and we talked a lot about his vision for Ultra 4. That was very important to me. I wanted to know, you know, where he was going. If I, if I commit to something, I tend to commit to something all the way. My wife always laughs with me that it's all or nothing. There is no gray area. 
you know, with me. I'm all in or I'm all out. And I was really excited about where he was going, the things he was talking about, how he wanted to grow Ultra 4 beyond just him uh, and really uh, make it something sustainable for for Bailey and for future generations. And it was just an ex- exciting vision. And uh, Lindsay uh, was doing a, a fantastic job with communication. Again, I've known Lindsay forever. She had to deal with me as, as a photographer. So I was on her her bad boy list, but uh, he really wanted to step up and drive some of the marketing and strategy uh, aspects of it. And that was right in line with my day job. So I was just absolutely thrilled for the opportunity. So even though technically I'm part-time, there, there's no such thing as, as part-time. I have day job and I have night job and they're both, they're both equal time, but this is certainly something I love. And then from there, you know what, when I needed to, to fill in with social, I filled in with social. When I needed to do you know, uh, trade shows. I did trade shows with Dave, you know, got to really work with Jeremy quite closely. And, you know, it was pretty heartbroken when Jeremy left because we were finding a rhythm there too. And, but then the addition of Ryan Thomas to the team, just again, couldn't be more excited, but I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Dave's vision of how do I make ultra four about more than me? How do I systematize success and still have that feel? I mean, every conversation, believe it or not, starts with drivers. Uh, I know there is a segment of drivers that probably don't believe that, but I, I, I can tell you firsthand with clear eyes, drivers are, are the center of what Ultra 4 is, then sponsors and fans and kind of working, working out from there. And that's what Dave's intentionally trying to do is surround himself with people who can help the sport outlive him. Because there's so much energy and passion and time and money invested in this lifestyle that it needs to be more than a 20-year story arc. You know, it needs to be a 40, 50, 60, 70-year story arc. And we, we really believe we're at the beginning of something, still at the beginning of something that's unique and great and dynamic. And, uh, you know, the infrastructure's in place to make sure it has legs. And that's, that's just that's something I couldn't pass up. I wanted to be a part of that. No, I can see why you would want to be a part of it. I mean, I, I love being a part of it as well. And I think uh, I really en- enjoy you as you're telling your story, I mean, recognizing the exact parallels that you went down and myself went down when it came to our stopping racing. We stopped racing for different reasons, but as it gets to it, you still want to stay involved and say involved in the sport and around your friends and your peer group and, uh, where the fun is and I me, mean, I'm in the exact same boat. You, you picked up your camera and that parlayed into uh, where you're at today um, with your second job. And then for me, I parlayed into, well, this thing that everyone's listening to. So, and we're both sitting here just trying to further the sport, spread the word, share our knowledge, share the stories, share our people, and just in general, uh, be good stewards for the sport. Sure stewards ambassadors you know whatever you know if if you love it you want to represent it well and you know we both love it absolutely so okay as we're kind of getting to close the future what does the future hold for for alan i know you said you'd like to be tall and skinny (laughs) i I can't help you there uh you you mentioned you'd like to you know just have more choices by the time you turn 50 elaborate on choices i'd like to i'm always curious what goes through people's minds what does the choices mean these are actually related stories. Uh, when I was with the consulting firm in Phoenix, we did a group for young people called Young and Motivated, high school age, young college age, where we talked to them about investing, where we talked to them about life choices and things like that. And 
one of the questions we always ask, who wants to be a pro athlete? And of course, everyone's hands would go up. And statistically, you know, 99% of people had to put their hands down. We'd use that as a learning experience to say, just because you're not a pro athlete doesn't mean you can't work in a field you love. There's sports therapy, there's medicine, there's this. And so it was a way to encourage people to, you know, you're always going to work and make money, but it was a way to encourage people to find something they're passionate about and then work in that field so that they can, they can still love it. Well, right around that same time, we got very involved in uh, Dave Ramsey. A lot of you may know Dave Ramsey. Uh, if you subscribe to Dave's, Dave Ramsey's uh, theory of biblical money management, uh, he's your worst enemy because he keeps you from buying all the fun toys. But if you've got an eye to the, the big picture, it, it's a wonderful way to, over time, get out of debt, be responsible with your money. And so when I say more choices, by the time I'm 50, I, I want to work where I work and do what I, I do because I choose to do that, because I'm debt-free, because I'm not living paycheck to paycheck, because my kids are taken care of, my house is paid for. So that's what I mean by choices is, you know, I love doing stuff because I want to do it. You know, I'll probably work till the day I die. I like working. You know, my wife gets a little mad at me, but I feel like I'm contributing and I find work that I enjoy doing. That's why I move at this pace. But I want to do more stuff because I want to and less things because I have to by age 50. But, you know, that game plan started 15 years ago. You know, we had $30,000 worth of credit card debt of paycheck, paycheck, and just had to make choices about lifestyle. You know, everyone laughs at me for driving my, you know, 2007 FJ Cruiser with 245,000 miles that seems to leave me stranded quite often. But that's car number four on the depth chart. You know, we pay cash for all of our cars. My wife's got a nice, dependable Toyota Highlander that's relatively new. Both my kids have, you know, dependable vehicles. So that's what I mean by more choices by 50. You know, I'd love to do ultra for full time or something, you know, in this space. And I'm on my plan to where by the time I'm 50, I, I will have more choices. The kids will be out of college. Financially, I'll be 100% debt-free, including the house. And, you know, I've got a plan to stay that way. So I am trying to play the long game there, but I'm also enjoying every single quarter along the way because I also believe it's a mistake to wait till you retire to start enjoying things. You miss so much if you wait until the end to play the game. So that's what I mean by that. Uh, probably a little uh, ethereal, but you know, if you want to talk finances or you want to look into a way to give yourself more choices, I would strongly recommend uh, just researching a little bit about Dave Ramsey. Again, not everybody's cup of tea, but certainly something that, that helped my family and I and something we passed on to our kids so that they don't have as much debt or things to dig out from under, which is literally just crippling when you run up a bunch of debt when you're young. We all do it, but there there are better ways than, than going down that route. So will we see an ultra four post about, you know, the fastest over 50? Is that, you know, am I putting you know ideas in your head? I don't know, man. I'm a year and a half away from 50 and I can't see anything besides nationals right now. Nationals and KOH 2021, which again, I want to be abundantly clear because if there is one question I get, 10 times a day through Instagram, Facebook, everything else. Because, you know, if, if you've got a smart alecky reply on social media, you got it from me because I'm, I'm handling those, those accounts right now. But, you know, is King of the Hammers 2021 going to happen? And I can say emphatically with 100% confidence, King of the Hammers 2021 is going to happen. Same week, same time, same place. Dave and Ryan and the whole crew are working with the county, with BLM. Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts and things that need to be done and, and COVID planning and this and that. 
But yeah, Nationals this coming weekend and then King of the Hammers 2021 is, is my entire world. And that's how I'm going to dodge your fastest over 50 question. <laughs> I love it. It's uh, it's quite all right. Man, supporting Ryan Thomas. How fun is that? Dude, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm thrilled not to be the new guy anymore. That's kind of cool. Now they all pick on Ryan instead of me. You know, it's, it's tough to be in a room and you've been there a year and a half and you're still the new guy. So I'm excited that, that Ryan's on board. Uh, with his background and culture in desert racing and the Baja lifestyle, he brings a lot of skill sets to the table that we, we don't have from the rock racing side. But he has completely fallen in love with the ruck racing and culture and Ultra 4. And, you know, how can we grow this? And, you know, everyone's big concern, a big concern when I joined the company. I mean, Camo, God bless him, is, you know, everybody's favorite, you know, dad. He calls me on the phone and literally asks, so what are your intentions with Ultra 4? Well, you know, going to get her pregnant and leave. No, you know, that's not the response you want. But everyone kind of had that with Ryan. And to see him embrace the culture, embrace the driver-centric focus, embrace the how can we continue to improve the driver experience. I mean, there's, make no mistake, tons of room for improvement. No no one's walking around thinking we've got it dialed in. There's some things we do really good and, and things like the timing we talked about that we don't, but we try to make changes when we can to make those better. And Ryan is certainly a, a dynamic uh, driving force. And he's far enough outside the circle, if you will, that he can challenge JT and semi live he can challenge me he can challenge dave all in love we're all working for the same goal and it's actually pretty cool to have a professional perspective with his background at jackson and bfg and you know baja and all that type of stuff he just he brings another flavor that once you add it to the ultra four family just just makes us stronger well i think we can agree i think we can all agree that you know there's multiple ways to do the same task and i like that he has come from still off-road but outside our genre and has a different perspective and and that that perspective is welcome at the table inside the halls of ultra four yeah it's just cool i mean just like any person everyone can relate to this you know success is is good and bad you have to have a plan to scale you have to have the ability to everyone wear multiple hats but also have a clear vision on where you want to go and I think Ryan's role and then Ryan specifically as a human being and as a professional talent are just another step towards, you know, growing ultra four and making it uh, sustainable. But at the end of the day, I think our core team is still 13 people counting me and I'm a part-timer. So it's a very small group of people. So if you were at the Moab event, it was the funniest thing. I, I, one of the reporters was asking, where's our president? I pointed at the guy shoveling dirt and rocks over the timing loop at the start finish line. I said, that's him. You know, so everybody does a bit of the, you know, do it all guy. And, and Ryan has certainly jumped in and been no different, but he's smart enough to come up with a plan on how do I get out of that being my job at every race? How do we scale it for <laughs> There's someone who's actually in charge of the timing loop besides him. So it's been fun. And just like anything, when you got a new guy with a with a strong vision who uh, you know is a leader, that always brings some uh, interesting dynamics. When you've already got a, a strong leader, and then you know the JTs and Richard Crosslands and myself of the world, but man, iron sharpens iron, and it's, it's actually been pretty friggin' cool. That is a good statement right there. Iron sharpens iron because it is a bunch of uh, Type A Alpha Alpha guys. Man, y'all get along so well. You guys really crank out some good stuff. Well, I was going to say Alpha, but I, JT was included in that as well. I'm pretty sure you know he's a Biden supporter. So uh, 
Oh man, you just got knocked off the Christmas card list coming out of Fountain, Colorado. No Christmas card from you. Postmark Fountain, Colorado. I I, I I got knocked off the the even living list. I need to watch it. You know, I know this isn't going to air for probably a week or two, but he he may be outside my window right now because he has a sixth sense. It will. No, that's that's the other cool thing too. Not going to lie, got to get it in. Getting to know JD on a personal level. Getting to know Richard Boston. Getting to know the whole Ultra Four bureaucrat and travel over there. Oh my God. I mean, seriously, I do deal with some junk on some days and put out fires, but look at all the things I get to do. I mean, I'm not bringing to brag, but you know, I've genuinely gotten to know JT on a personal friendship level. I've gotten to go stay at Jim Marsden's house. I get to go watch racing in, in Wales and, you know, drink blackberry vodka with the Polish team in a, in a rental house in, in you know, Wales and, what else is going to, to afford you that? What else is going to give you those opportunities to meet these fascinating people and just experience life literally all over the globe? So whether a racer or working for Ultra 4, I just really dig that type of stuff and uh, that Ultra 4 even gives you those opportunities. Yeah, you are the, you know, almost the ultimate Ultra 4 cheerleader. I, I do love it. That's awesome. Did we cover all the bases you want to cover? I know you said you talk a lot and you did, but that's completely okay. Cause you had so much good content in there. Oh, you can edit it wherever. I'm just, again, I appreciate being here. I appreciate, <laughs> I've really liked the series because again, I, I knew Casey Gilbert, but I didn't know Casey Gilbert. And it has just been really fascinating for me to learn about people I know and like and respect in the, uh, the industry. So I do appreciate you, you having me on. I think you're doing a great job here, not just for, you know, the sport, but, but for you and, and, and sharing, you know, I'm a storyteller and this is an, an ultimate storytelling platform. So I'm, I'm grateful oh, and appreciative to, to be on the talent tank. And frankly, I did it all for the hat. So, you know, I was really jealous that other people had talent tank hats. I'm kind of hat donkey. So that's my true motivation. They are coveted, very coveted. Before we bounce off, I need to uh, to do not necessarily some housekeeping, but just a little announcement and a little congratulations that Eric Miller and Lee Miller, that we all know so well, Eric and Lee welcomed in to uh, the Ultra 4 family, a new racer. And I'm proud to say his name's Wyatt. His name is Wyatt, and uh, they've got a new baby. I think he got here uh, yesterday, and so and we've got nationals. You know, come so Eric is uh, Eric and Lee with a new baby and racing right there. Congratulations, Millers! Well done. Glad to hear Lee is uh, healthy and uh, amazing about this uh, this little play buddy for uh, Nixon. Alan, man, thank you for coming on the Talent Tank. I really appreciate, really value the job you're doing. Really value you taking your time. Uh, to go out and, uh, and back my venture here. I really do value it. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, guys, this weekend nationals, man, there'll be a live feed, right? Alan ultra four racing, you bet. Racing.com slash live. And you will hear all the miles. You can get your ears full of, uh, I can't wait to I, see him too. I just saw him a couple weeks I, ago. Actually, I, I do need to do a public service announcement here. Playing Miles catchphrase bingo with beers is hazardous to your health. So, you know, pace yourself and, and do some of the Miles bingo catchphrase stuff with water because it, it's a long event and uh, we really care about your health. I need to see this bingo board. Maybe I need to be texting that out. Maybe I need to text Miles and see if he has it. Or maybe I just need to create it if it doesn't really exist because I can get most of them like, all right, back to you, Jim. Back to you guys. All, all, all four Nitto tires holding there. 
powered by Optima Battery. <laughs> As I'm doing a sponsor shout outs on here for Miles. Oh, man. Well, Alan, thank you again. Really value you coming on the show. And I hope everybody enjoyed the last, uh, call it an hour and 50 some minutes or so, and 45 minutes. Well done. Well done. Well done. We'll see you guys at Nationals. All right. We're out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.